The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 15, 2022. Earlier this week, the Justice Department announced its plans to create a new domestic terrorism unit to tackle what officials say is a growing threat. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from October 2019, where David Priest sat down with Bobby Chesney, Lawfare co-founder and professor at the University of Texas School of Law, and former U.S. government officials Lisa Monaco, Mary McCord, and Nick Rasmussen to discuss what domestic terrorism is, how to define it, how we outlaw it, and what more we can do about it. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 15th, 2019. A couple of weeks ago, Lawfare and the Strauss Center for International Security and Law sponsored a series of panels at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. You've already heard on this podcast feed sessions with John Bates of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and with Jack Goldsmith about Jack's stepfather, Chucky O'Brien, and O'Brien's long-assumed role in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. This time, we bring you the audio of our TribFest event on domestic terrorism, what it is, how we define it, how we outlaw it, and what more we can do about it. It features Bobby Chesney of UT's Law School and former U.S. government officials Lisa Monaco, Mary McCord, and Nick Rasmussen. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 461. Chesney, Monaco, McCord, and Rasmussen on domestic terrorism. This is titled From Within, the topic on domestic terrorism, of course, sponsored by Lawfare and by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Uh, quickly, I'm David Priest, the Chief Operating Officer of Lawfare. I worked in the Counterterrorism Center at CIA both before and after September 11th, so now revisiting the terrorism issue from a different perspective. But I'm really here to bring out the best expertise and insight from our four panelists. Bobby Chesney is one of the three co-founders of Lawfare, who previously served on the President's Detention Policy Task Force. He is now the James A. Baker III Chair in Law and World Affairs at the University of Texas, where he also directs the Robert S. Strauss Center. Mary McCord has been the Acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security, the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General for National Security, and for, what, 20 years before that, a U.S. Assistant U.S. Attorney. She's now the Legal Director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and Visiting Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center. One step closer, Lisa Monaco. Lisa was the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to President Barack Obama, as well as the Assistant Attorney General for National Security and Chief of Staff at the FBI to then-Director Robert Mueller. 
Whatever happened to him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She is now the co-chair of O'Melveny and Myers Data Security and Privacy Group. She teaches national security law at New York's University School of Law and also is a senior national security analyst at CNN. Last and certainly not least, Nick Rasmussen is at the end. He was director of the National Counterterrorism Center, or NCTC, after serving in government positions in both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. He's now senior director for national security and counterterrorism programs at the McCain Institute for International Leadership and a professor of practice with the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. That's a lot of background and experience to bring to bear <laughs> on this issue that's confronting us today. So let's start off with laying the stage. Bobby, what is domestic terrorism and what statutes do we have to help us address it? So the first thing to understand as we grapple with the definition of domestic terrorism is that there's, there can be, and in fact is often, a difference between what we might describe as the, the ordinary common sense definition or sense of the phrase and what particular legal definitions there might be. So let's just start with the common sense understanding, which is usually described as something like the following, uh, illegal acts of violence where the mental state of the person conducting the act, where the intent is to have a coercive effect on government policy and or to intimidate or terrorize a civilian population. So there's this, this motivation that distinguishes it from pecuniary crime, you know, trafficking, violence, that sort of thing. Um, that's just the common sense understanding. What makes it domestic instead of just terrorism in generally uh, would be where the nature of the threat actor doesn't have a substantial foreign tie. The plot's not emanating in the form of direction and control or, or development of the plot, et cetera, from abroad. That is to say, it's simply one of us doing it here. Um, that's the common sense understanding. As for how it's spoken about in statutes, that's where it gets kind of tricky, and, and therein lies a lot of our current issues in this area. At the federal level, we have a variety of what we might describe as generic violent crime statutes, uh, killing of a federal official, for example, a type of murder statute. Um, and, but then we have a slice of federal criminal law that's specific to terrorism, and you can find it in Title 18 of U.S. Code, subchapter 113B. And there's a whole laundry list of, of all these offenses there. Most of them are international terrorism focused because that's, the, that's an area where, of course, it's the federal government that's got to play the lead role. It is widely believed and said that we don't have a domestic terrorism federal statute. It, it's true that we don't have one that's labeled as such. And I think we're going to talk as a panel about whether that's an important gap that needs to be closed simply for the symbolic purposes and all the things that practically follow from the symbolism. Um, but it's also the case that some of the terrorism statutes in Title 18 actually do apply to domestic terrorism scenarios. So as a practical matter, if the question is when can the federal government get involved in charging, if it's a terrorist attack that's purely domestic but it involves explosives, or attacks on certain types of targets, federal officials, transportation hubs. In those scenarios, federal law can, and terrorism statutes can be charged in those scenarios. The practical gap, there, there's two, guns. 
and other forms of violence like edged weapons or using a vehicle that don't involve explosives. So domestic terrorism using the most common method of attack would be guns. That's not covered at the federal level unless some other way of approaching it uh, happens to be triggered. Secondly, you may have heard of something called the material support statute. It gets complicated because there's more than one of these, but the one everyone's heard of is like an embargo that flat out prohibits any provision of support, tangible or intangible, to a foreign terrorist organization that's been formally designated as such. We don't do that with domestic terrorist organizations, so that's a, that's a separate gap. And whether any of these gaps should be closed is a separate question that I think we'll talk about. Absolutely, and quickly, you mentioned federal, federal, federal. Yeah. But for an issue where there is a murder using a vehicle or a gun or an edged weapon, states will prosecute that. And here it's, it's going to be... It's it, not domestic terrorists are yeah. running away because there is no federal there, There's no scenario that involves an act of violence that's not going to at least violate okay. general purpose state laws. So in, in our own most recent tragedy in El Paso here in Texas, mm -hmm. um, there is capital murder charges have been filed by the right. DA in El Paso. Doesn't matter that we can't file a federal domestic terrorism charge in order to seek the death penalty in that case. Right. But it might matter for other reason, reasons. Going back to previous cases of mass violence in the United States, there's, there's been a lot of talk after almost every one about what needs to be done, and not much has happened because of it. Lisa Monaco, you wrote recently with Ken Weinstein that regarding domestic terrorism, it's time to turn from talk to action and confront this threat. What specifically do you have in mind? What should be done to fill some of these gaps that Bobby mentioned or address other elements of domestic terrorism? So thanks for mentioning that piece I wrote with Ken Weinstein, who was, um, had my same role in the White House as Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor for President George W. Bush. Um, and that piece we wrote was really about calling on all of us, political leaders, citizens, to put aside political tribe, put aside the partisanship and really do our duty, is how we put it, to focus on the most urgent threats we have as a nation. Domestic terrorism, gun violence, mass violence, Russian attacks on our democracy. All of those are things where Ken and I both feel we need more bipartisanship and nonpartisanship. So on, on domestic terrorism in particular, I think there's a few things we should do. One, we need to call it by its name. We need to call it out. And here I would cite um, some, a good move by the Department of Homeland Security just last week in issuing a strategy paper that, that says in quite clear language from the Department of Homeland Security, domestic terrorism and mass attacks are as great a threat as foreign directed terrorism, as foreign terrorism. That is a, given the headlines and the, and the um, incredible tragedy uh, that communities like El Paso and Dayton and others have faced, that seems apparent, but it hasn't been said. It hasn't been said and it hasn't been said enough, uh, certainly by uh, the federal government and experts at the federal level. So we gotta call it out. I think we also need to put it on the same priority list. We have to put it on the same plane as foreign terrorism. We shouldn't, which is not to say that we should be ignoring or downgrading our um, approach and our focus on foreign directed terrorism. I suspect there's a lot of uh, unanimity on this panel on that score, uh, but we need to uh, kind of reprioritize or recalibrate how we're thinking about domestic terrorism, because with that follows resources, focus, leadership, which gets to one of the things I think we really need to do, and one is a pass a domestic terrorism statute. Mary has written 
exceptionally eloquently about this, and she can talk about it more. But doing that, I think, will apply the same moral opprobrium to acts of violence that are directed to, uh, with the intent to intimidate a civilian population, uh, the same moral opprobrium that we have for foreign-directed terrorism. So pass a domestic terrorism statute. We also need to restore the job of the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor in the White House. Um, so that role, the one I had, has been downgraded. Uh, the, the person who serves in the now downgraded function uh, of that job, I think, has been put into witness protection uh, <laughs> after you know, he had to make a statement about the whole Sharpie gate. I don't want to get off. Uh, Let's be clear. There still is a position there. It just doesn't report directly to the president like you did. Correct. So there, there is a position. They're calling it the Homeland Security Advisor. He's been downgraded within the structure. What does that mean? Is this all just bureaucratic baloney? No, and here's why. When I was uh, in that role, the idea was, and President Bush started this, I think, quite rightly and quite smartly, to have one person operating at the most senior level in the White House whose job it was to focus 24-7, wake up every day, focus not on the next summit, not on the next foreign leader engagement, but on threats to the homeland, and to report directly and immediately and I can tell you I did, which is why President Obama gave me the nickname Dr. Doom. Because <laughs> every time I saw him, I was bringing him bad news. But it, structure matters, right? And how you spend your time matters. I met with him every morning in the Oval Office and briefed him on terrorism threats, cyber threats, you name it. Terrorism was always at the top of the list. So I think it matters. It means there's focus in the White House at the top, at the leadership level. It means you have somebody in the White House who can convene the cabinet, which I was able to do, operating at my level with a direct kind of empowerment from the President of the United States to coordinate our response to terrorism events in this country and abroad, to coordinate policy. You need to have that um, responsibility resonant in one person. And we can talk about other things I think need to be done, like funding for community and grassroots efforts mm -hmm. to uh, kind of uh, intervene when people are going down a dark path, gun reform, you name it. Yeah, let's go back to the statutory side first. Mm -hmm. If any of you in the last couple of years have read or heard anything about the need for a domestic terrorism statute at the federal level, it was probably attached to the name Mary McCord. <laughs> here, um, here. You have been beating this drum for a while, including more recently after the, the most recent uh, attacks. Tell us, what specifically do you have in mind? What would a federal domestic terrorism statute have, and what's the benefit of doing it? Sure. And I'll tell you, you know, I was thinking about this, and I think Lisa was before me, holding the role as Assistant Attorney General for National Security before I was o even over there in a similar role, but as an acting. We were thinking a lot about domestic terrorism and, and whether there was a gap that needed to be filled. But I left the government in May 2017. In August 12, 2017, most of you in this room probably uh, recall the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, which ended with a vehicular attack, a domestic terrorism attack by James Fields, who rammed his vehicle into a crowd of counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and seriously, seriously wounding dozens of others. And I watched that, and I saw what happened and I thought, 
This is the same kind of terrorism we've been seeing across Europe and other places on behalf of foreign terrorist organizations like ISIS for the last couple of years, because frankly, the vehicle had become almost a, almost a weapon of choice in a lot of the attacks in Europe. That was the UK, France, Germany, elsewhere. And so I, I immediately wrote about it that, that very next day to say, we have a gap in our statutes, because if this person, James Fields in Charlottesville, had pledged by to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, before he committed his attack, just like if the shooter in El Paso had pledged Bayat right before he committed his attack, I can guarantee you either both of them would be charged with crimes of terrorism, international terrorism for attempting to commit that attack on behalf of a foreign terrorist organization. So we have a double standard. And as Lisa mentioned, the way, you know, crimes in our country are society's way of expressing their condemnation for activity, that it's beyond what is permissible in a society uh, of laws and of the rule of law. And so there is that moral equivalency that we need to have, I think, in the way we approach terrorism. But beyond that, because people will say to me, all right, so is it just semantics? Is it just moral equivalency? But a lot comes from that, a lot that's really important. One thing is that people right now, I think, oftentimes in the US hear the word terrorism and they immediately think Islamist extremists. They think jihad, they think 9-11. And People need to know what a threat is because you have to make decisions in your daily life. And I'm not suggesting that we all go around scared to go out in public for fear of terrorism. That would be the worst thing to do. But you need to know what the threat is so that you can appreciate and understand, even if you don't appreciate, the efforts that law enforcement and our intelligence community and our government put forth to combat that threat, and more importantly, the, the ways that you as community members can be aware of the threat and looking out for things you might see in your own community. I mean, we know in the area of international terrorism that in, in as many as 70% of the cases, there was somebody, a bystander, a family member, a friend, a teacher, a coach, a religious leader, a mentor, who saw something going wrong in that person's life before they decided to commit a terrorist act. And the same thing holds true when we're talking about about ideologically motivated attacks that are not based on a foreign terrorist organization, but on ideologies, uh, extremist ideologies, whether it's white supremacist extremism, which we know right now is the most, most lethal ideology uh, when it comes to terrorist attacks and deaths in the US, and it has been that way for a few years, or whether it's animal rights extremism or an anarchist extremism, when you commit an act of violence in order to intimidate or coerce, that's terrorism. So the gap, as Bobby mentioned, is twofold. Right now, and, and you will hear this a lot, um, that there are 51 crimes that would apply to domestic terrorism. But those are very specific, as Bobby indicated. It involves use of explosives or, or attack on US government property or US government officials. There's no crime that applies to use of a weapon to commit a mass shooting to intimidate or coerce if it's not tied to a foreign terrorist organization. Same with a vehicle. There's also no crime that would apply to stockpiling weapons intending they th them to be used in committing a mass shooting for ideological purposes and in order to intimidate and coerce. So as I've conceived of a, of a statute, and I've talked with a lot of people on Capitol Hill, I've talked with uh, civil rights and civil liberties groups, I've talked with the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. I've been trying to talk to as many people as I can about this to try to see if we can't 
have a proposal that sort of satisfies all the concerns. So the basic outline of this would be that you're criminalizing already existing crimes of violence, things that could be prosecuted in state courts, right? Murder, kidnapping, assault with a dangerous weapon, aggravated assault, right? But when done with the intent to intimidate or coerce or influence policy of government through intimidation or coercion, this would be, and when done in the United States or the U.S. territories, this would be terrorism within the territorial jurisdiction of the U.S. And I say that instead of domestic terrorism because it would also apply to an, uh, a terrorist attack on behalf of ISIS or al-Qaeda because the whole point would be it's this crime of violence here in the U.S. to intimidate or coerce. What that would do would also form a not only a predicate for law enforcement to aggressively use the types of tools they've used to combat international terrorism. We can talk about those. That's like online undercover personas, sting operations, things that some people criticize as being too aggressive, and I understand that, but those are things that are aimed at prevention. So it gives law enforcement more of a predicate they can do some of that now. I don't want to suggest that they can't. But when they know that this is the statute that they're that they're predicating their investigation on, it makes it it gives them a route that's more direct as opposed to calling it something else in order to use those tools. It would also allow for the criminalization of the stockpiling of weapons, knowing and intending that those are to be used in committing a crime of terrorism within the. U.S. jurisdiction, and and that's you know probably more complicated than we want to get into here. How, what it would involve in amending to do that, but essentially you may recall Christopher Paulison, U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant, was recently arrested for stockpiling an arsenal of assault rifles um, and other weapons, and had written extensively about his four-year plan that where he was going to be accumulating weapons, accumulating targets, and and ultimately commit a series of mass shootings uh, intent on creating a white ethno state. Because there was no applicable federal crime, he was charged with possession of a silencer, which is unlawful, unlawful possession of drugs, because he happened to have drugs uh, also in his uh, home, and unlawful possession of a firearm by a drug addict, because he had drugs in his home. So these are all five-year offenses, a maximum of five years. We would call them fairly minor offenses, um, those of us who've been prosecutors. And they're, so, they're not crimes of violence. So the magistrate judge ruling on whether to detain Mr. Hassan prior to trial said, I'm not going to be able to detain him. You have not even charged him with a crime of violence. Now, the US government appealed that to the district court judge who overruled that decision and said, no, I will detain him. But it, 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 it's a serious concern when you have somebody so intent to commit a mass attack causing mass um, violence that really, you know, there was very little to charge him with. Last thing, and I know we need to move on, people say, what about hate crimes? It's true. There are federal hate crimes, and in fact, the government has been more aggressively using those recently. That's why you heard the U.S. Attorney John Bash after El Paso say, to his credit, we're investigating this like domestic terrorism, but his next breath was, so we'll be looking into whether to charge him with a hate crime. And um, you might think, why that? Well, that's because we didn't have a terrorism. He didn't have a terrorism offense to point to. And hate crimes sometimes can fill that gap. Robert Bowers, the Tree of Life synagogue shooter in Pittsburgh, has been charged with federal hate crimes. But hate crimes aren't going to completely fill that gap, and they and they they sort of serve a slightly different role within our criminal justice scheme. And we can talk more about that if people are interested. But it is one option that is that is you know a, a fruitful option and a good option that's being used. It just doesn't completely Fill that gap. So there's that statutory side, but there's also the mechanics of government, which is how does the federal government, it might surprise you all to know 
that immense amounts of money and resources are dedicated to terrorism in the federal government, especially countering it. And yet, we have Nick here, who ran the National <laughs> Counterterrorism Center for three years, was its deputy for two and a half years before that, and has said publicly that absolutely none of that time was directly focused on domestic terrorism. Nick, how do we understand that? How does the public understand how the National Counterterrorism Center sure. wasn't focused on this threat? Well, as David pointed out, I'm the non-lawyer of the bunch here, and so, but I, I would fully you know, subscribe to the set of comments made before me that talk about we need a better legal framework. But as a practical matter, the way our government approaches the set of domestic terrorism challenges that we face is just different than the way we approach our set of international terrorism concerns. And a couple of things happened in the last couple of years that kind of brought that home to me. One is I, when I would go abroad and meet with my counterparts from other countries, and I would think about international versus domestic terrorism, they would look at me as, a, as if I was bringing some lexicon to the table that made no sense to them, because they didn't make any such division or any mm -hmm. such create any such divide. They simply talked about terrorism and the kinds of terrorism that they were confronting. Why were you Americans complicating this was the sense I was taking away from them by thinking about it in two different ways. And then secondly, when I thought about things like the Tree of Life uh, synagogue massacre that Mary referred to a minute ago, and I thought, how are my friends and colleagues in the White House and in the administration responding when an event happens like that? And I kind of knew from my long experience in the White House Situation Room, sitting alongside Mary and Lisa, I knew exactly how we would have kicked and swung into action had it been an individual who was tied to ISIS or al-Qaeda. We would have had the CIA, the Defense Department, the State Department, the Treasury Department, Every national security agency that you can think of would have been around the table with us trying to figure out what piece of this can we help solve or address. On the other hand, as soon as that person is identified as being a domestic terrorist and not being in any way linked to an ISIS or an al-Qaeda, all of the rest of us in a metaphorical sense pushed ourselves back from the table and looked to the right and said, FBI, over to you. And it becomes then simply an FBI matter to treat as a law enforcement set of challenges. And I don't say that in any way as being critical of my friends and colleagues at the FBI. What I'm saying is we tend to leave them alone on the playing field when dealing with this set of issues. And to their credit, they are amping up their game. They are ramping up their game against that set of, this set of issues. You've seen FBI officials in, in testimony talking about that. But I think the rest of the government may need to catch up in, in terms of its ability to contribute to solutions on this domestic and terrorism. Just to fill problems. in that part, Nick, why is it important to have a whole of government approach in that area? Well, because, again, one of the things we've learned, I think, in the entire period since 9-11 is that no one tool in the toolbox is actually sufficient to deal with any of our national security problems, and certainly not terrorism. We couldn't bomb or fight our way out of our, our international terrorism problems, nor could we spend our way out of it with foreign aid. All of these needed to be pieces. Intelligence was part of the equation. And so, the course, of course, the same is true with domestic terrorism. Mary rightly pointed out that the Department of Homeland Security has, has, I think, stepped up its game, at least rhetorically, with a document last week that Acting Secretary McAleenan um, released that says that the Department of Homeland Security will be approaching this set of domestic terrorism issues with renewed urgency and, and, and a, sense of, uh, a sense of real prioritization. The question is, will that follow with resources and programs and personnel and dollars, all of the things that us bureaucrats, or we bureaucrats, <laughs> um, use as metrics to find out if you're really serious about something? And then I've thought about my own organization, the National Counterterrorism Center, David, not to dodge your question, and I thought, 
all of that effort and energy that went into creating an NCTC after 9-11, and it was explicitly told in the early days, focus overseas, focus on this international terrorism problem. And that's just simply living where we live today makes no sense. Why would you have your premier counterterrorism organization with some of the best minds and, and access to the best information on terrorism-related matters and wall them off from this set of terrorism concerns that I think we would all agree is probably at the top now. If you go around to American community, communities right now, including in Texas, sure, you are right to be worried about an individual inspired by ISIS or al-Qaeda. That threat is still very much out there. But the far more pressing and proximate threat is, as Mary suggested, that posed by individuals motivated by a white supremacist ideology, a hate-based ideology like anti-Semitism or something like that. So again, bringing NCTC into the game alongside FBI, alongside Homeland Security is not a panacea, it's not a silver bullet, it doesn't mean that the good guys are now here and will fix the problem, but it does come closer, David, to what yeah. you said, which is whole of government approaches to these solutions. Yeah. And one last point on whole of government solutions. If you're talking about dealing with this set of challenges, whole of government also means the Department of Health and Human Services because of their capacity to bring mental health resources to bear on this problem set. It also means the Department of <coughs> Education being part of the equation on this because clearly some of this stuff is happening in our schools, including in middle schools and high schools. So whole of government is what you ought to be demanding of your government, whether it's Democrat or Republican. And I think that's what some of us on stage have been talking about. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting our podcast. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. It encourages everyone, even the best students and top professionals, to do their best work and accomplish even more of their goals. Grammarly is a writing assistant that I use to make myself look and sound smarter. You, too, will easily improve yourself and your communication at school, work, and almost anywhere with Grammarly. It helps people show their best self through writing and is available across platforms, including an online browser extension, a desktop editor, and a mobile keyboard checker. Grammarly is available on Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and Edge browsers, and on platforms like iOS, Android, Windows, and Mac. The free product reviews critical spelling and grammar. Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling and grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, readability for different occasions, a little bit of everything. Accomplish your goals with help from Grammarly. Stop making email typos on your phone. Close more deals at work this year with your emails. Polish your resume to get that new job. I've been using Grammarly, and in the past week alone, I've saved myself from sending at least a dozen embarrassing emails and Twitter posts. I should know better than to make so many mistakes, but when I'm writing fast, I do. Now, 
Grammarly keeps me in safe territory. So use Grammarly and personalize your experience. You can change the settings to write for different occasions like school, work, or creative writing. Grammarly can remember new words, too. So go to Grammarly.com lawfare to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash lawfare for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. Let me go beyond even the government. Back to you, Lisa. You've written about the importance of getting buy-in and cooperation and working with social media companies to, to talk about the environment that breeds domestic terrorism. How could we build on that model of working together within the government, sometimes well, sometimes not, but build on those successes to improve that relationship with the private sector? Yeah, so there's so many of the same threads that all of us in our decades of experience have seen in the international terrorism front, in the fight against al-Qaeda, the fight against ISIS, that are now migrating and have migrated to the domestic terrorism front. And the online space is a perfect example. So the individuals are getting radicalized the same way in the domestic terrorism context that they have and we've seen now, unfortunately, for years with regard to ISIS. So when I served in the White House and uh, was working so closely with Mary and Nick and others, we were really focused on this problem of individuals radicalizing online and then the nearest wolf at the door was ISIS and ISIS literally abusing social media platforms, which was, of course, designed to promote free speech, promote community, um, free expression, et cetera, and it's literally being abused and turned to a completely opposite purpose by radicalizing and inspiring individuals uh, to violence and to spew hate and to inspire actual attacks. We're seeing that exact same phenomenon now in the domestic terrorism context. Uh, and it makes sense when you think of how much time we all spend online. So the same individuals who are disaffected, who are looking for some sense of community, which, by the way, is why I hate the term lone wolf. We've all heard the phrase lone wolf terrorists, whether they're inspired by ISIS or inspired by white supremacy, etc. They're actually looking for community, and they're finding that community, unfortunately, in a hate-filled place online. So how do we combat that? We've got to work with those who know these platforms best. And that's what we found uh, in the ISIS example. We also found that government was not the best messenger when it came to trying to counter messages of violence and hate, whether they're from ISIS or from the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and so that starts first with a relationship of trust, quite frankly, between governmental entities, law enforcement, intelligence community, and the social media companies. What we've seen is social media companies actually doing a much better job at policing and moderating content from groups like ISIS and taking that off platforms, sharing information with the government to make sure that that information is coming down from places like Facebook and Twitter. We need to have them do the same thing when it comes to violent extremism and inspiration that comes from domestic grievances. Now, that's easy to say and a lot harder to do because it's a lot more complicated when it comes to domestic grievances inspiring individuals to violence, and it should be, quite frankly, because we live in a country that prioritizes and privileges and protects 
free speech. So it is, I, I don't say this to minimize how complicated it is, but we first need to agree that it's a problem worth solving. I'm going to do something that as a moderator is, is difficult. I'm going to both get personal and try to generate tension among the panelists. <laughs> Bobby. <laughs> Working at the university, you're working closely with the Lyndon Johnson School of Public Affairs. Lyndon Johnson said, you do not examine legislation in the light of the benefits it will convey if properly administered, but in the light of the wrongs it would do and the harms it would cause if improperly administered. Mary made a great case earlier for a federal domestic terrorism statute and what it should include. What are the dangers in legislation that is perhaps rushed through even though that's hard to imagine when we've debated it this long. <laughs> but legislation that is pushed through, what harm could come from a ill-advised federal domestic terrorism statute? When you started off with an LBJ quote, I was a little nervous because some there of them are a little off color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was all right. Um, so I think uh, what Mary's talking about, not surprisingly, is very sensible and well-considered. But that doesn't mean that's what would get enacted. So if we want to, if we want to forecast what could go wrong in, at the federal level, a couple of possibilities. And here I will, I will channel some of the feedback that I sometimes get when I talk about the same ideas. And you know, you'll hear pushback in various quarters. One concern sounds in federalism. And, and as we've pointed out, we're not talking about a situation where, where stuff isn't criminalized. There, there are usually some federal statutes in, in some of these cases, but always state statutes. And so there's a question that makes some people nervous from the point of view of the seemingly unending expansion of the reach of federal criminal law, right. and therefore the primacy of federal investigative jurisdiction in some cases. I think that concern's a little overstated here, although I think there are other contexts where there are questions about why federal law should should supersede the choices of states, but that's a different topic. The, the bigger concern is one that I think is unlikely to materialize, but we occasionally hear members of Congress mention this as a possibility. In my opening remarks, I mentioned that with foreign terrorist organizations, one of the most powerful tools we have is the material support statute. We, we formally designate certain foreign terrorist organizations as such, and at that point it becomes a crime to give any sort of uh, aid to them, and even to provide your, to become a member of the group who's subject to the group's direction and control. It's banning the organization. And if you were to do anything like that at the domestic level, you're recording some serious First Amendment freedom of association problems. And, and at least as importantly, the policy can of worms, the Pandora's box you're opening up by doing so, is best envisioned simply by imagining that we have a domestic organizational ban mechanism. And imagine that you were kind of liking the idea because you had an idea of what sorts of extremist distasteful groups might end up getting the ban. Mm -hmm. Now imagine someone who has the dead opposite ideological and policy viewpoints and political commitments that you've got, and they've got this tool. Is it possible they might start banning groups that you think it's outrageous that they're banned? As you say, as LBJ warned, some, some things are possible we might not right. want to see happen. Mm -hmm. So I was testifying in Congress about this on Tuesday in the Senate Homeland Security and by the way, I want to put a plug in for that organization having, that particular committee having taken a very bipartisan, non-political, highly functional approach to this. I went to Washington, y'all, and it was okay. 
but you came back quickly. But I got back as quick as I could. But that had yeah. more to do with the But, but tacos. did you use y'all? Oh, always. <laughs> always. Um, so, so I see no sign that we're going to go there, but every now and then it comes up, and there are people who say, fill in the blank ought to be designated a terrorist organization. That doesn't mean they necessarily also want to pass a material support statute, but if not, why are we designating it? Mm -hmm. Let's not go there. Yeah. And David, I just say it's, a, it's exactly those concerns that complicate the job that I was just talking about when it comes to online, mm -hmm. uh, the online space, right? How do you, you know, one person's organization or category of speech uh, that is offensive to one and odious to many people may be perfectly acceptable within yeah. a free speech context. Sure. Mary, you've thought about this. You've thought about that intersection between good legislation, bad legislation, and the risks, the dangers, the First Amendment concerns, the freedom of association concerns. So talk through that. How do you respond to somebody who says this is just too hard to get that mix right? Well, Bobby was being very kind. I can create the, the, the uh, tension myself because I've, I've, <laughs> I've had it with a lot of, in a lot of other conversations. First of all, to be clear, nothing that I've been writing about or suggesting would designate these domestic mm -hmm. groups. And I think what Bobby is referencing is, is again, some members on, some people on Capitol Hill and elsewhere have said, why don't we do that? And I don't think any, most lawyers think that that's a bad idea. Which is the the First Amendment challenges would probably be insurmountable, and if you surmounted them, you'd be left with such a small fraction of organizations, basically an organization that only engages in violence. You could designate, I think, without running afoul of the First Amendment. But it would be pretty easy for an organization to say, "Oh no, we do all these other things too," right? right. Because hateful speech, and this is also a problem going to what Lisa mentioned, hateful speech is protected um, by the First Amendment. Violence is not. Imminent violence is not. And so with social media, where do you draw that line, right, between right. what somebody might be saying uh, over the Internet that is horrible, that probably everyone in this room would agree with, no matter what your politics, that is horrible and hateful, but is if it doesn't actually incite imminent violence, it's probably protected. But to go back to the, the things that I've been talking about in terms of a federal statute, um, I've met with a lot of the civil rights and civil liberties groups because, and I'm just going to be frank, they're opposed to it. And they're opposed to it basically for one significant reason, and that is the distrust they have in law enforcement. They are worried that if there is another statute created that the FBI and other law enforcement will abuse that statute and they will frankly target their resources to things that could be labeled a threat, but that are not the real threat um, that we're facing right now in, in America. Um, and certainly, historically, there have been instances of that happening, particularly in communities of color and vulnerable populations. And I think we all are probably aware of, of, of those abuses. Um, and I think it's a legitimate concern, and I don't downplay it for one minute. So my question then, when I'm talking to civil rights and civil liberties groups is, okay, how do we ameliorate that risk? And one of the things that I've suggested is not just congressional oversight, but also public oversight. So yearly reporting by the FBI, by DHS, um, to Congress, public, open. There's no reason this would need to be classified of sort of the number of investigations, terrorism investigations they're opening. Are they resulting in criminal charges? The number they close by category, right? Islamist extremist terrorism, white racially motivated terrorism, animal rights terrorism, uh, anarchist uh, extremism, you know, the categories that would allow the American public and Congress to see, you know, law enforcement, are you putting your resources 
uh, toward the actual threat? Are they commensurate with the threat? If they open 100 cases of, of terrorism and 90 are animal rights extremism and 10 are white supremacist extremism, we, we know that there's something really wrong here. Um, and so that's one possibility. Another possibility that I have suggested that is actually in Congressman Schiff's bill is to have the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board sort of review the use of this statute after a period of time that's enough uh, for them to have some sort of data to collect, because we would get much better data about terrorism if we had a statute. Right now, we have really horrible data. The best data we have, frankly, are from places like the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, maybe you guys at Strauss do some, I don't know. But, you know, it's from, it's not from governmental organizations because there's just no clear reporting of it. But these, these kinds of things, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board has been used in the recent you know, years to, uh, to, frankly, usually to review surveillance programs of the U.S. government and other programs and to give it a good hard look. It's a bipartisan uh, committee. I met with uh, their staffers recently. They look really hard at, like, how, what are the privacy and civil liberties concerns of this program? Is it being administered, you know, uh, correctly and legally, and what could be what could be done to provide more transparency to the American public about how these authorities are being used? And so that's another possibility. And then one last thing I, I, I say is I also sometimes hear about the possible creep into this un, a new statute unlocking additional authorities, right? And sometimes I think people are are actually thinking maybe foreign intelligence authorities. But right now, when we're talking about crimes occurring in the United States, we're talking about just using criminal tools, criminal tools that already exist, things like, you know, undercover operations, sting operations, but other search warrants, Title III warrants when, when appropriately predicated, subpoenas, the same kind of things that law enforcement used to, to investigate other crimes. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't create any new investigative tools. It would merely allow those tools to be used. And they can be used already in furtherance of domestic terrorism, but it would make a better fit. Right now, we're sort of trying to fit sort of square pegs into round holes when it comes to what uh, law enforcement is, is driving toward. We'll turn to, to questions in a moment, so formulate those. But Nick, I, I want you to reflect on that. And from your well, experience, just, how does that... If there's a sliver of good news to take away from this conversation, it's yeah. that <laughs> there is room for bipartisan common ground on this set of issues. I have like Mary, had serious conversations with Hill staffers from both sides of the aisle. Like Bobby's, there have been hearings in which you can clearly see common ground. There are Democrats and Republicans who want to find ways to improve our statutory framework. This is not like the gun issue in that regard, in, in which in, in, there's a real problem-solving sense. Now, there are still real problems, and Mary ticked through both the problems and the ways you might kind of manage those problems. But at least it's a real debate among people who genuinely want to get to a, a set of solutions that will put us in a position to do more than just use these kind of crimes of violence, which, as I think we said at the beginning, it just doesn't make sense to call these things normal crimes of violence mm -hmm. when they are, in fact, carried out on behalf of a hateful ideology. Right. One other thing, Nick. While we have you, it would be a shame not to take advantage of this. One of the unheralded successes of the National Counterterrorism Center in the last 15 years is the interaction with state, local, and tribal entities on issues that previously there was a large gap on. We're sitting here in Texas. Uh, what could the federal government be doing to build on the successes of NCTC and applying it to domestic terrorism issues? Well, again, that, that radicalization process that we talked about yeah. earlier in the conversation, we spent a lot of time and energy and resources looking at how that process unfolded when a young man or a young woman was becoming, in a sense, recruited, radicalized, and mobilized by a group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. 
And we've learned over time that that process unfolds more or less the same way. Again, I think as Mary described earlier, or Lisa described earlier, more or less the same way when it involves a person who is acting on behalf of a white supremacist or a hate-based ideology like that. So there's a lot of learning that has gone on in the federal government, and that learning can be shared with state and local law enforcement, and it doesn't have to be burdened by concerns about classification or right. this is too top secret to be shared. But a lot of this is just pure social science. Mm -hmm. and, and what it does is put us in a position where communities can become the first line of defense, which is what we need to happen. It's communities that will find they are the ones who see, appreciate, understand, and can predict where these incidents will happen long before federal law enforcement. And again, that's not a slam against FBI or, or federal law enforcement capabilities. These individuals grow up around us in our communities, and so we are the ones who are most likely to need to be equipped with the knowledge where we can say, wait a minute, something appears amiss. That person looks to be headed in a bad direction. And if that happens, then we can use tools that, that, that kind of kick in before the crime. And the, the tools you use before the crime are the ones you want to be using. Jim Comey used to say, whenever we had these conversations about terrorism, if I'm involved, it's already too late. We're now talking about someone being charged with a crime. And you usually can't back your way out of charging someone with a crime. Mm -hmm. But ideally, you get to a point where you can off-ramp or divert someone who may be consuming hateful ideology, but they haven't actually gotten to the point yet of picking up a weapon and doing something about it. Right. And this is where the federal government can do more to kind of make communities better prepared yeah. to deal with that. Great. Let's hear what you're curious about. If you have a question, raise your hand. Please remember to phrase your question in the form of a question, not a speech. <laughs> so I use a lot of those anonymous online forums, and you see a lot of that stuff on there. It varies a lot depending on which forum you're on. You might go on Reddit and never see it. You might go on 4chan and see nothing but it. Whose responsibility is it to regulate this an anonymity that these hate groups can enjoy? All right. Who has the, who has the duty of monitoring online content? Well, I'll start and I'll let, let others jump in. And, and Lisa, you know, led our engagement with the tech sector in the last administration to try to get our arms around these problems with the jihadist set of issues, and it was a challenge. We took, I'd say, we gave ourselves maybe a B minus or a C plus yep. Yep. in terms of our performance and in terms of their performance. And it's that much harder to do this in the space that you're talking about, where you're talking about all kinds of offensive stuff, but if it's not tied to a foreign terrorist organization, it's much harder for, for, for us as a government to expect that companies will take that material down. But I, say, I would say you have to put the burden on the companies. They are the ones maintaining and profiting from the platforms. And I, the good news is I think they are beginning to accept that responsibility. And one minor indicator that I think they get it is that you're starting to see a migration of people who used to work for people like us yeah. to go work in those companies. And while yeah. I hate to see that outflow of talent from the government, of really capable people who are tremendous civil servants, I also want those people working at places like Facebook and Google and other places because they bring a sensibility about national security and about community safety to those companies that might not exist in quantities that you want otherwise. Well, I would just say, I suspect it's a point that Mary's gonna make, <laughs> there is no entity within the federal government or in any state and local government that I'm aware of whose responsibility and authority is to monitor any online platform of the type that you described. So that's a direct answer there. Um, there's lots of good reasons for that, but that's why the onus needs to be on 
the companies that uh, operate those platforms. It needs to be on the communities, the users of those platforms, and it means that there needs to be uh, a lot of communication with government and the uh, law enforcement community for based on what you're seeing there. Mm -hmm. Quick follow-up? Just, just one quick point, too, and it's exactly what I was going to say. One last thing. There's a lot of confusion about this. This is a basic point, but the First Amendment yeah. only applies to government actors. Yes, so such a good point. private social media companies, and they're private, they can ban anything they That's want, right. and they do will not violate the First Amendment. Just like you in your home can ban somebody's from your home if you don't like what they're saying. Restaurant owners, same thing. Putting aside racial discrimination and things like that, okay? So um, I think the social media companies look to government sometimes as a crutch because they want government to make them do it so that they can say to their users, we're being told to yeah. do this. Yeah. But they need to just step up and they need to just listen to what their users want, do the right thing, and, you know, monitor a little bit better the hate on their, on their platforms. And I'll just add real quick that, so I do a lot of work on disinformation in the larger problem of, various kinds of problematic speech online. The bigger platforms are all, in, to varying degrees, very engaged on this issue in particular, very actively involved in trying to figure out a good way forward. I don't think they need further nudges at this point, <laughs> but that's not where the worst conversations are taking place right. and the worst yeah. inspiration is taking place in ever more marginal platforms. Right. The good news is, as it gets further and further into the dark corners, it's harder and harder for the hateful ideologies to find, by random coincidence, certain audiences. But it also gets harder and harder to spot them and for, for relevant government actors to see what's happening. So you're talking about stuff like, like uh, Daily Stormer, right? Uh, an actor that does not want the government to help it and won't listen to the government. And I mean, I've seen Daily Stormer as the first result on Google when searching up an, a Jewish issue. How do we counter that when the, the tech companies are not being good actors? You know, it goes to the points that all of us were making. What they, you know, uh, the platforms, the search engines have got to see it in their business interest, which means their um, users and consumers need to demand that of them if they see it in their business interest to push those search results down. Let me add, there's a cross-cutting concern that we can take a lesson here from the uh, FBI successes in spotting Americans who have been radicalized by the Islamic State, when you go through the endless indictments of the past few years and see the at least the public-facing story of the investigation, almost invariably the opening investigative shot was somebody saying publicly in a place FBI could observe it, yeah. something on social media that drew attention. And so as the conversations that are most frightening move into encrypted channels and other channels that aren't immediately visible to the public, might be more easily missed, um, there's also a loss of intelligence leads there. So it's a bit of a trade-off. You Less inspiration, but less opportunity to watch the, the scarier conversations. Uh, thank you all for joining us again. Uh, so I actually worked in the intelligence community for seven years, and I know and I, I got a question, so I'll try to make it quick. Uh, I know that terrorism and radicalization doesn't fester in areas where the Overton window doesn't expand to buttress up against that. So what would your uh, recommendations be for either the government or us as individuals to try and shrink the Overton window enough to where radicalization doesn't seem acceptable? Thank you. What, what, what's the quick answer to how to stop radicalization? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think 
understanding the drivers of it yeah. would be a start, although, you know, I don't think any of us up here are social scientists, and yeah. so we're not as, as well-equipped maybe as some others. We've all studied this a fair bit, and maybe Bobby has, has more on that. But it's got to be, I, I can't emphasize enough that it's got to be very ground up and not, and not government down, as Lisa mentioned earlier. You know, in fact, when the government under, you know, Lisa and President Obama's and Nick's good leadership tried to kind of really invigorate a program that was called Countering Violent Extremism, we got tremendous pushback from communities felt like they were being targeted, much like they felt like they were targeted as being terrorists in terrorism investigations, thought they were now being targeted for countering and put the responsibility and the onus on them for countering, countering extremism in their communities. And so support for, I think Nick mentioned support for, support for grassroots organizations. I mean, there are organizations like Life After Hate and others that work with people that have, you know, started on that path to radicalization toward violence um, and, you know, the communities coming together to talk together about how they can spot the precursors and what things they can do, you know, the, some of the obvious things are there, right? Better educational opportunities, better job opportunities, feeling more like you are actually a part of a community, welcoming communities, pe communities that don't make people feel like they're outcasts and they're not wanted and they're not welcome. I mean, many times we found whether somebody who ends up committing a, a terrorist attack or traveling to join a foreign terrorist organization, just like somebody's who are committing a terrorist ter attack for ideological, domestic ideological purposes, a lot of times we'll see these are people who are in search of some Thing that they could be part of that was bigger than themselves because their own life was not fulfilling. And so we need to provide more things, right, that people can feel like they can get behind. I mean, we got climate change. We got all kinds of stuff going around that people could be getting behind yeah. instead of violent extremism. And Nick, I want you to weigh in on this, too, because the NCTC, for 15 years, you've had no kidding experts working on radicalization in the foreign terrorism context, you could fill this room with the papers they produce. Take out the classified ones in your mind and put those aside. <laughs> but from what you can talk about, what are those kernels that they found of ways of cutting off the radicalization process? Well, again, it ends up being a lot of, of grassroots involvement and early involvement. And that's why, to me, we talk, we've, we've talked somewhat positively about the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, strategy recently issued on domestic terrorism. One simple metric to measure, for all of you to watch for, to, me to measure whether this administration or any future administration is serious about dealing with this problem, and that is, are they willing to fund grant programs to the tune of tens of millions of dollars a year? Because this is not a problem to be solved with one big, big dollar, high ticket uh, program from Washington. But there are non-governmental organizations in almost every large-sized community in the country who do this work in a community setting, but they can only do it if they're given resources to do it. And so giving $50,000 or $100,000 to a group in Minneapolis or Chicago or Los Angeles or Boston to do this kind of work is going to be far more effective than having some big program run out of Washington. The challenge, though, is when you give grants out to organizations like this, you're sometimes going to fail, and you're sometimes going to give money to people that don't end up using it perfectly appropriately. That to me is a cost of doing business and it's something we ought to accept. So that's my metric for whether we're serious about dealing with this problem. Final add-on on this. So the question had framed this in terms of the overseen window, which is a really useful concept about the outer boundaries in both directions of what's sort of acceptable discourse and what's the fair playing field. Top-down isn't the solution, but top-down inputs can make things much worse. 
when rhetoric that is irresponsible yes. and yes. invites a shift in the Overson window towards more extreme ideologies, winking and nodding towards, nodding towards them, makes the problem much worse. That's got to stop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Please join me. Please join me in thanking our guests. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Bobby Chesney, Lisa Monaco, Mary McCord, Nick Rasmussen, and to the Texas Tribune for hosting the festival in this panel discussion. Thanks also to our sponsor, Grammarly. Remember, you can get 20% off of a Grammarly premium account today at grammarly.com lawfare. Please share the podcast, rate the podcast, tweet about the podcast, Instagram yourself listening to the podcast, anything that strikes you to help us spread the word. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Howell. The Texas Tribune provided our audio, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>